Coming up on this week's show, Sony do a big U-turn. An amazing Zelda remake. And we talk to 8-bit and TV legend Peter Scott. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week in part with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the original Game Boy, or maybe just discovering the wonders of Nintendo's million-selling portable system, you need to check out Game Boy, the box art collection, a vibrant celebration of some of the finest ever cover artwork for the monochrome marvel that kickstarted the handheld games industry. You can check that out and lots more on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 272, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our weekly roundtable chat all about retro gaming, bringing you up to date on what's been happening in retro gaming and tech over the last seven days, and then bringing you an industry veteran on the second half of the show. And that is really... What this podcast is about, isn't it? Taking you back to the days when you got home from school and couldn't wait to get on your Super Nintendo or going game shopping for Commodore 64 games on a Saturday with your mates and collecting and keeping those systems alive today. Yeah, totally. Like, I just love games. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom line, we love games. Like, that is the bottom line. (laughs) And, you know, there is kind of a theme that runs through what we do, I think. The fact that a good video game is a good video game regardless of when it was made. Because, I mean, we're talking about last week this story about Sony that we're going to pick up on in a moment because there's been a big backtrack. But I think the point of that, you know, the fact that they were going to discontinue all of the PlayStation 3, the Vita, the PSP stores, and really a lot of people online have been saying, these are still good games. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's kind of like, you know, watching a movie from the 70s or 80s, I can enjoy it just like I can playing an old video game or listening to an older piece of music. Just because it's a few decades old doesn't mean that it's not good anymore. You know what? That's literally how I try to describe it to people. You know, when people ask me about like my hobbies or whatever at work, and I Mm. say, oh, I'm really big into retro gaming. They go, oh, what's that? And I say, you know, like, you, I always say, or like, you know, your Sega. And they go, oh, yeah, I had a Sega when I was a kid, you know. And they go, well, why'd you play them? Why'd you? And I'm just like, well, it's the same as if you listen to a song from the 80s yeah. or the 90s, or if you watched a film from the 80s or the 90s. And every now and then you get, you know, those heathens who go, I don't like old films. I, I don't like old fashioned films. I only watch m- new films. And I'm like, all right, mate, saddo. <laughs> but it is the same as that. Like, you, you just hit the nail on the head there. It's what's the difference in listening to like, you know, Thriller by Michael Jackson or playing the Mega Drive. What's the difference in terms of age? Do you know what I mean? It takes you back to a time period as well. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, everything that was associated with it and stuff like Games Master and, you know, the Big Breakfast and kind of TV and culture of the time. And, you know, we have all these memories associated with it. And uh, this week's guest is an absolute legend and actually worked on Games Master and the Big Breakfast. I like what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) That was very smooth, Ravi. Yeah, now today we're going to be joined by Peter Scott. Now, Peter is a really interesting guy. Um, Recently, we've been covering quite a bit of the the BBC Micro 
on the show. And he actually was quite a prolific BBC Micro and Acorn Electron programmer. Did a lot of ports of games that were available on other systems to the Acorn platform, like Predator, SimCity. He did a really good version of that for the BBC Micro. And then went on to do um, a Simpsons game on the NES as well. And then got into the uh, glamorous world of early 90s TV. And he did work on Games Master alongside Dominic Diamond. Of course, you know, we cover that quite a lot recently. But also a show called The Big Breakfast. Now, for people that don't live in the UK and aren't of a certain age, how do you sum up The Big Breakfast, Ravi? Um, it was kind of like everybody must have been on something that were presenting <laughs> it because they were far too lively that early in the morning. And it was the 90s, so they probably were. And um, Or there must have been a lot of drink going around. It was like a kind of chaotic breakfast, the, the breakfast that your mum and dad wouldn't want. And you could watch it on TV, and uh, it was very naughty, very rude, and like there were lots of shows like that. We had um, TFI Friday as well, which was like uh, that nearly got taken off air because that was before the watershed, and uh, they were very rude as well and stuff. So you know, it's this kind of like period of bad attitude, crazy kind of stuff, and you know, it's amazing going from being a, a BBC micro developer then going into like one of the big cultural shows and then doing crazy stuff as well. Like he, he started working um, for live TV, which was one of these digital TV channels as well. And they had some absolutely mad stuff. But um, the thing that really fascinates me about um, Peter Scott, this week's guest um, was him working on Sim city and actually porting that to the BBC. Like what a challenge it is to actually fit Sim City on the BBC and get it all working and functioning and it was such a big title at the time. Yeah, so Peter Scott, really interesting guy. He's going to be our special guest. We've got a lot to cram into this week's interview and he'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now let's jump straight into the news stories this week. No sooner did we mention it on the show and the internet went into meltdown that Sony confirmed they were killing off the PlayStation 3, PSP and Vita stores and now... They've had a bit of a change of heart, it seems. Yeah, so Jim Ryan, who's the president and CEO of Sony Interactive Entertainment, uh, released a statement earlier this week. Essentially, you know, I won't read the whole thing, but, you know, he essentially said, recently we notified that we're going to be turning off the PS3, PS Vita and PSP stores over the summer. Um, However, upon further reflection, it's clear that they'd made the wrong decision. So they're happy to announce that they're going to continue to support the PS3 and PS Vita stores, but they are still switching off the PSP store on July 2nd, 2021. Um, and essentially they're saying, you know, there wasn't enough um, resources to keep them going. Essentially, everybody's gone out there and bought a load of games. I mean, we mentioned it. A lot of YouTubers have made videos about it and stuff like that. But I can't help but think there's just some sort of like money-making thing here. <laughs> this is where I go on my anti-capitalist rant. <laughs> Basically, I think like there's been a reaction around the web mm. going oh sony have listened to the fans oh and it's like it's just that expectation that they'll be dicks and like just take a store like this away or mm. you know it's it's like they chose to take it offline and it mustn't it mustn't cost that much compared to the amount of money that they're making and surely it's only a few servers on like Amazon web server or something. You well, know what? That's, that's what got me because in the statement he says, you know, the idea was for them to have to move 
focus and more resources onto newer devices so they could bring us more you know better things for ps4 ps5 and the next generation of vr it literally says in other words go out and buy a new console yeah and it's just like like ravi says and literally what you've just said there dan it's just like really does it is it really costing that much to keep it running do you know what i mean like or is it literally like only a couple of sales were being made a day on the psp and ps3 store and now all of a sudden like a million sales have probably been made um, well, there was a, a video um, Metal Jesus Rocks did, which yeah. was like, go out and buy these games because they're going to disappear. And I reckon a lot of people went out and bought yeah, them. And then the dollar sign started going so many times again. Racking it. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and you know what? I, I was moaning about that, like, not specifically him or anything like that, but I was moaning to my friends last week saying, you know, oh, all these YouTubers have jumped on the bandwagon. They're saying, oh, go go buy these games and stuff. But actually, I did like Metal Jesus' video because if he said, go buy these games, which are super expensive and never came out, you know, in America or the UK, it only came out in Japan. And if you want to buy it physical, it's like $500. So I, I get, I, you know, he was like, go buy it for a fiver now. But yeah, it's, it, I, it's I, just I could be wrong, but I think like, you know, what is the cost here? Like, you know, bandwidth wise, if, if you want people to download the game slowly and you're not rinse your bandwidth, then you can just slow it down a bit. And, you know, everybody's on internet services where they're not paying per minute. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't quite get why they want to turn the stores off. Maybe, like like you said, it was to push people into the direction of uh, another mm. console or to another store, or or maybe like you know buying the um the the new versions of the games on the PS Five yeah. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. You know, the one thing for me, I, I've seen a lot of outcry about this, and for a lot of people, especially people who may you know a bit younger than us, who maybe the PlayStation Three was kind of one of their earlier systems suddenly realising that, you know, games on digital stores are not permanent and how you are at the mercy of these companies that can flip the switch. And to a lot of people, it's kind of brought the idea of video game preservation to the front of mind over the last week, I think, which is, you know, obviously an important point. But then I'm looking here, I mean, you know, the fact they were going to turn off the PS Vita, and I'll link this um, list from Metacritic in our show notes. There are actually five games that came out on the PS Vita already this year. The latest one only came out last week. Astro yeah. Aqua Kitty came out oh, wow. on April 15th. So the fact that they were going to turn it off when, um, you know, games are literally... Yeah, people are still producing games for that and platform. It, and it's sad that this is now the exception, you know. This has become standard that all these stores get turned off. And when it doesn't happen and, and they listen to demand, people suddenly go, yay! And it's like, no, it, sh- it shouldn't be standard, I think. I think... And- as no, long as these companies are making a lot of money, they should keep all their services yeah. open yeah. and not kill the old hardware off like that. Yeah, hundred percent. And it, and like you say, it's it it, it kind of rolls into the next thing we were going to talk about as well. Does it drive up the cost of the physical releases for those consoles? Yeah. you know, for the PSP, the Vita, and the PS3. Well, it's apparently like PS3 physical games now. The prices are kind of skyrocketing because mm. i mean it got to the stage where you could get them for like two or three pounds in cx you know a couple of years ago yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah that's I all mean, that was in CX. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean yeah there is there is some certain games demon souls um i'm trying to think of some others um off the top of my head i can't think of any exclusives right now but you know there is there is a lot of games that have suddenly jumped up and you know i've i found an article here uh, where a guy called ghetto gamer Essentially, you know, not that long ago, bought, you know, Splatterhouse for the PS3 uh, for $25, and now it's over $100 on eBay. 
and I wonder whether it's all kind of like off the back of this. Do you know yeah, what I mean? It, it, it's it's just games are just skyrocketing like Demon maybe, Souls. Maybe by knocking it out, they've they've kind of spurred the whole market on, and now they're thinking, oh god, unless they're planning a PS3 mini. <laughs> we don't know about it. I doubt. I, I think it's certainly been burnt on the mini thing um, already. I don't think we'll do another one. I don't think <laughs> yeah, they will true. either. But yeah, it's just it. But I don't know. Just this last kind of year. Obviously, I know we've had. You know, I don't want to talk too much about COVID and stuff like that. But just the market. You know, in a gaming market, a retro game market, whatever you want to call it. You know, PS3 is it retro gaming kind of thing. It's just been crazy. It's been so up and down, but it just seems to be up just up 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 at the moment everything's so expensive kind of thing you know the next thing's going to be those we fit boards um, yeah that are stacking up <laughs> everywhere they're gonna <laughs> hit the roof like i saw ps3 games going for like 50p a few yeah. years ago and w- one pound you know and just stacks and nobody wanted them my 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 friend about four or five years ago used to go around all the caxes in nottingham CEXs, <laughs> and he used to pick up original xbox games because they were selling them for 50p for any game and he was trying to get a full Xbox collection. And now those games, you know, I'm not saying they're worth hundreds or anything like that, but certainly a lot of them are worth like five, 10, 15 pound now. Whereas he was picking up for 50p from CEX. I do remember in the cash converters in our city centre in Nottingham, last time I was there, I think they had a shelf of about 50 Wii Fit boards for about £2.50 each. So, uh, yeah, if they're going to go in value, that's where I am this weekend. You, you could build you could build a, like, gaming shed out of Wii Fit boards. <laughs> we just go over to Dan's and he's built an extension onto the side of his house out of Wii Fit boards. <laughs> But, you know, all joking aside, I do think that it is important that, you know, this subject has been raised. In the mainstream media over the last week, people have been wondering, you know, why we're letting classic video games just disappear. Mm. I mean, you know, you're talking about the fact that they they were thinking of closing down those stores, apparently... 2,200 titles would suddenly just not be available anymore, and over 130 of them were only on those digital stores. So I do think it is a good thing, actually. That is one thing good that's come out of this, that people are now realizing that, look, we need to preserve the history of gaming, and it is important that we still have a way to play these maybe games. Maybe that's I mean, why, uh, like, you know, Wii U and PS3 and stuff like that's going to shoot up now because people are starting to realise, you know, the newer consoles don't have the physical physical ones, you know. You can get a version without a disk drive. Yeah, which I think, you know, maybe this will put some people off getting the... Um, now the, the digital-only versions of consoles, now they actually give it some thought. So maybe it kind of goes back to that analogy we mentioned in the intro there. Imagine if all of a sudden, like, Netflix deleted, like, you know, all movies from, like, the 2000s, because, oh, we've given up on that generation now. You know, you lost, like, a decade's worth of movies and you could never watch them again. Yeah, that would suck. <laughs> and, and it's weird because, as well, like, obviously this must affect the multiplayer function. So, so maybe they were willing to see all the multiplayer games suddenly hit the floor and maybe a lot more people downloaded them and they might be looking at the servers and then going, oh God, there's there's more people playing multiplayer. And usually it's down to the fans. Sadly, it's down to the fans to like save a feature like this. Obviously, Sega went down the pan and you get the um, Dreamcast online one, which you can now connect with, with a kind of hack server and stuff. But yeah, if, if fans can host it, then why can't a company that's making millions and millions and billions of pounds host it like easily you know because they don't want to <laughs> <laughs> they, they want to make more billions yeah because they want to make more billions 
Yeah, exactly. You want to play Resident Evil on the PS3? Well, go buy it on the PS5. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if I could get a PS5. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now let's talk about a classic video game franchise that's coming back for 2021, and this is Leisure Suit Larry. Now there is a new game called Wet Dreams Dry Twice <laughs> that is coming to the Switch in May, and there is a trailer here. Um, it has got, I mean, a Leisure Suit Larry to me, has always been a bit hit or miss. I'll be honest, really the only one that I've properly got into was the original game, the LLO classic from 1987. I remember having that, you know, in the 90s, and you get that bit at the beginning where it actually quizzes you to find out if you're old enough to play the game. But all the questions are like, you know, who was the American president in 1932? Like that's so you, you go down to your dad, like, Dad, there's a quick question for my school homework. I bet your dad was like, I, I, I ain't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, no Google then. That whole original, like, Larry Laffer games, um, mm. they, they went up to, like, Love for Sale, yeah. 1996 was, like, a really good kind of period. And then they had another set of games which came out, which was... Uh, Larry Lovage games. Uh, there were two of them. And then Replay Games, there was another one, of the, uh, which was Legend of Larry Reloaded. So there's been a lot of attempts to kind of bring Larry back. But um, I played this one myself, Wet, Wet Dreams Don't Dry, which was the original one. This is They Dry Twice. Um, <laughs> and it's really 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 good and really funny like because the whole thing is larry gets put in a time machine mm. transported to the modern day but even back in the 80s larry had this like 70s vibe he was he was uncool and now he's even more uncool because he's entering a w- world with like feminism with apps with um kind of there's a dating app called timber and he hasn't even got a phone, so he's got to learn how to use that. And there's like um, Bill Jobs or Steve Gates is the big head. And like, you know, I've talked about this game before, but I really absolutely loved it. And uh, it's a really good vibe. And I think it's it's going to be ideal on the Switch, you know. So I was going to say, so this is essentially a re-release of that game onto the Switch. Uh, that It's the second it part, it's of, the second uh, part uh, of, it. of yeah. that game, yeah. Okay, so, cool. So this one, um, he's got a Pie phone. And, uh, and, and, and the Pie phone's um, uh, turned into a Pie bot, uh, which is a new thing. And he also gets trapped in virtual reality where he ends up in the old early 8-bit Larry game. That's awesome. That does sound fun. Because I mean, to me, I was looking at this and I thought, well, I remember Larry was in his 40s back in like the original game in 87. So I thought, well, he must be knocking on that into his 70s now. I didn't realise there was a time travel element in there, but that does make sense. Yeah, and it, it's just hilarious him just trying to work everything out with like coming from the 70s. You know, <laughs> I, I I just love that you know Nintendo, the family friendly console, that they've got away with wet dreams dry, dry twice. <laughs> And if you look at the screenshots in this, pretty much every screenshot has got something phallic yep. at some stage in the background just or just been, hidden I've away. I've just been studying them to try and find them. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the head CEO is called Mr. Wang. And there like, you go. You know, it's, it's a really cool game. The idea of this, I mean, it's all tongue-in-cheek. It's very, you know, carry-on movie, isn't it? You know, it, it's all 
good-natured fun. And I know some people are looking at this. I've seen some of the comments going, you know, there's no place for this in 2021. But I think the fact that they do take the mick out of Larry, the fact that he is dated and he but is old-fashioned. the old thing is, as well, he's not, he's, in this, it's really smart. He's not, like, coming out with, well, he's coming out with a few awful jokes, but it's not, like, crass or it's not, like, kind of out of place. It's uh, him with, like, PC society and trying to fit in but he's 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 harmless he's not like a you know a, a horrible pervert or anything he's he's just a, a loser a loser, loser. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> he's a loser just trying to get on in a, in the modern world and fit in so it's it's got a lot of social contacts and it's got a lot of stuff um there is still obviously a lot of sex jokes because that is the staple of the series but um it is very funny. I love the description they've got in this Nintendo Life article about his voice. Larry's got a voice like a tuba made out of nostrils. Yeah, he sounds well nasally. He's like, <laughs> hi, I am Larry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, that's exactly it. Yeah. So this comes out on the 18th of May as well. So not long to wait for it, Dan. We all like a bit of old-fashioned smut. Now, let's talk about um, a D-make. Now, we do love these when modern video games are kind of scale down to look like they could belong on classic platforms. And this is Zelda Breath of the Wild that's had a Game Boy Color D-make. Now, I know Breath of the Wild, Ravi, is like, it's pretty much the only Zelda game you've really ever got into. Yeah, I love it, man. <laughs> like, yeah. I just love the music and the relaxed pace of it and everything. And, and also the fact that for the whole blooming game, you're trapped halfway on on the, the plains, uh, on this mountain bit and then you have to get out into the plains and stuff and looking at this they've got it sectioned off with that big annoying wall and you have to <laughs> get past everything and then get on it and uh i was just listening and the music sounds really nice as well oh this is the music yeah really relaxing a nice 8-bit rendition of the theme and this is actually all done by one guy um a developer who goes by the name ohana studios who's ported this to look like a Game Boy Color version of Breath of the Wild. And you must be into this, Joe. This is so you. Yeah, man, this this looks... I absolutely adore Link's Awakening. Uh, obviously, that got re-released, you know, remade a couple of years ago now, but the original Link's Awakening is one of my favourite, probably is my favourite Game Boy game um, ever made. And then it looks really similar to that and then really similar to Oracle of Seasons and Oracle of Ages, which were Game Boy Color games. Um, this looks... Beautiful. So he has stated that it is just a a demo at the moment, and it's not. Please the don't full sue game. me, Nintendo. He says. Yeah. So he has literally put in the description of the video he's posted. This is not a full game. Please don't sue me, Nintendo. It's just a prototype. <laughs> I, prototype. I made it for fun because I love old school Game Boy Color Zelda titles. And then he's further further said, I might swap the assets for my own. Some are already, if you notice from the video, and I'll make it a full non-Zelda survival Game Boy Color style game out of this i'd actually love to do that because i love the game and also the art style so much so he knows nintendo will probably gun for him if it gets any sort of traction um but yeah man this looks beautiful i just want to see the horse bit like yeah he needs to get yeah. a horse that it'd be good to see like little clips of what he's doing and, and kind of developing this but it's a really nice idea i love dma yeah. games yeah man it's really nice it's just a two minute video at the moment but you know like you say, he's mainly in the plains and he's got that big that big wall, that big drop, uh, kind of cutting it off and stuff. But it'd be interesting for him to carry on, you know, see what he does with it. And if he does get the, you know, the whole stop making it from Nintendo, 
like he says, he'll just take his own assets and it'd be nice, you know, to see something like this on like limited run or something. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the thing we were saying last week, isn't it? You know, about these kind of Nintendo fan remakes that if you kind of, if you can disguise them, you know, maybe you can make it a Zelda game to get the publicity. Then when Nintendo kind of side-eye it, you just turn it into something else. Well, it's not Zelda, you know, and change the sprites a little bit. <laughs> then, Zelda. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I could be a way around it, I guess. But, yeah. Yeah, it does look really good, though. And to, to me, I, mean, I I love Breath of the Wild as well, but there is something about that kind of classic, you know, 8-bit RPG that it's just really cosy to play, I think. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of describing it, cosy. And Breath of the Wild, like Ravi said, it, it, it's a relaxing game. Like, you don't have to go, you know, you just made, like, you're just, like, cooking your dinner and stuff in it like that. Yeah. You know, it's you don't really like get battle to... battle now. <laughs> yeah, you don't really get to do that in, like, classic 8-pit RPGs, whereas he has actually got that element of it in this, you know, in this little trailer he's made. So, yeah, I could imagine people, if this was to get, like, an actual release, people actually picking it up and playing it. Well, people on the YouTube video um, that we'll obviously put in our show notes have been, you know, begging him, like, please put something out that we can play. So he's saying that maybe by the weekend he might actually release a small playable version, just like a level or two that people can play. So um, keep an eye out for that before uh, before Nintendo see it. <laughs> now, speaking actually of Nintendo demakes or remakes, this one actually soups up one of the best Mario games ever. This is Super Mario 64 Plus, an unofficial PC port with 60 frames per second, and apparently you can actually kill Mario. Yeah, permadeath mode on this. Oh, yeah, this play, play the music, Dan. <laughs> it, it, it's so good. All right, here we go. Yeah, so this this comes from um, some hardcore fans, once again, um, who released this game earlier this month. So yeah, Super Mario 64 Plus um, essentially is a PC port of Super Mario 64, unofficial, of course, um, which has already picked up 30,000 downloads, um, showing that there's a huge market for killing Mario. Um, a huge market for playing Mario games on the PC, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it plays at a solid 60 frames per second. They've sorted out a couple of the glitches from the original game. Um, so I don't think you can do the backwards jump thing anymore, if you guys know what that is. But it just looks really nice. And it's got, like Ravi said, it's got some awesome music in it as well. Now, the guys who have made this have said they're confident that Nintendo won't come for them. I don't know. <laughs> I think they will at, at 30,000 so downloads. Why are they so confident then? I don't know. It just says, this, you know, it's showing there's a huge market for killing Mario. What have they said here? Since there aren't any official Mario games on the PC, they reckon Mario 64 isn't a direct threat. There you go. Is that what they've said? Yeah, that's, uh, okay, optimistic. That is really that. optimistic. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they've had 30,000 as of the 20th well, of April. They're so. hosting the launcher and the builder but not the game itself. So you need your own copy of Super Mario uh, um, 64 and you put it in and then the launcher and the builder rebuilds it all and adds okay. these tweaks in and stuff. So they're kind of not got any of the assets in there or uh, any oh, of Ninten- you, Nintendo you provide your own down. ROM. Yeah. They'll take them down. They always do. <laughs> you know, it is interesting because I think, you know, we talked about it before when people love a game that much that they want to kind of soup it up and make it, you know, give it a new lease of life and fix the things that were wrong with the original game, um, which I, I, I think is an awesome thing to do. And I think they've made the right choice there then, Ravi, if that's the way it works, if you actually need your original cartridge and all they're doing is kind of giving you a way to play that cartridge better, I guess. Yeah, I guess, kind like, of ripping it all. it's a PC engine and um, not the console PC engine, but an engine for the PC. And they'll obviously be adding the new features and that will be done in the build. So... 
maybe they can like do a port that would be a modified ROM for like the original console N64 or oh, the Wii U. Come on, <laughs> I'd love to see one. But you know, uh, it's a cool idea, and like I, I've not really seen many of these like ROM hacks and stuff. Um, maybe there's a standard engine for actually creating these things in but um it says here you know it's got the bug fixes uh optional extra modes as well uh continue the level after getting a star improved camera angles as well and more responsive controls which uh seems good yeah yeah and the fact that it doesn't contain any of their nintendo copyrighted assets i guess you know a very wise way of doing it that's one thing when you get to the 3d era i mean we've seen it with other platforms as well the fact that these are all kind of you know polygons and textures you can actually upscale them and make them look like modern games. And, you know, this running at 60 frames a second, it looks amazing. And, and you know, you can run a texture pack on it as well, and I think they're saying that uh, they've got a custom texture pack as well. So that that might be quite cool because they're probably replacing the assets then with other, other textures and stuff and then using the original mod to add stuff in there. Yeah, wise way of doing it. So uh, fingers crossed this one will stay up. Um, and it is available for download now. Maybe Sonic is more your thing, though. Some fans have actually built a 3D Sonic game using Dreams. Now, what's Dreams? Dreams. Is 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 that the program that was on the PlayStation? It was like this PlayStation creation uh, program for creating games. Yeah, from what I, from what I understand, we're just doing this from memory because you actually told me about it last time we mentioned it. It, it is essentially like you say; it's like an open source game engine um which essentially you don't have to kind of like pay for or register that you're like you know a games company trying to buy on real engine or something like that but yeah this this has been made on the ps5 version of of dreams essentially it looks like you know sonic adventure but really really nice like maybe the nicest version of it we've ever seen but dan you compared it to one of the more recent sonic games i can't remember which one you said it was it's sonic uh, sonic generations sonic yeah, generations yeah, the, the 3d bits of um, that, yeah but yeah, this this looks, we've we've spoke about like Sonic remakes and Sonic fan remakes so many times before. Just do it, man. Just do it, Sega. Just like <laughs> just make it. Like the market for Sonic at the moment is probably the biggest it's ever been since like you know the nineties with the success of the last film. They're now making a new another one, aren't they? Yeah. Like kids are gonna lap it up. Like they'll they'll sell five million copies to kids alone and then they'll sell about five million copies to me. <laughs> you know? It's, it's pretty interesting because like this dreams thing, it looks really easy to use as well. Uh with like a little interface in there and it's all drag and drop and stuff. But they've also got Dreams VR. Yeah. So uh maybe mm. you can do uh, Sonic in VR. In VR. That'd be <laughs> that sick be <laughs> when you're running. <laughs> I think you made a good point there, Joe. It does kind of feel like the time is right for a big, yeah. proper, high-budget new Sonic game. I mean, I know the last one we had was Sonic Mania, which was obviously like, you know, a, a throwback to the original Sonic games on the Mega Drive. Um, I think the last 3D games I got were the ones on the Wii U that um, are probably quite forgettable to a lot of yeah. people. I think Sonic Boom Rise of Lyric, I think was the last one I got. Yeah, I, I didn't play any of them. They just, they looked very, you know, and, and, and you know, fair enough to them. It looked aimed aimed at kids, like kiddie kids kind yeah. of thing. And I get it, maybe that's where Sonic is these days, but I feel like we need a proper successor to the Sonic, Sonic Adventure games. I mean, I know we had Sonic Heroes on the GameCube, um, PS2 and stuff, but I just feel like... It's now the right time for us, you know, Sonic Adventures Free or something like that. Is that de- it's definitely time for it, you know. In those games, kids can play those games and adults can play those games as well. 
But yeah, this this in dreams one looks it looks beautiful, and it's quite cool that yep. they've got this creation tool that you know mm. you can actually use on the modern consoles because I don't know many other systems like other than Mario Maker. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's not that much uh, creation or creativity going on, so this is pretty cool. You know, these guys should do have made this um, Sonic 3D port in Dreams. They should actually just finish the game and go to Sega and be like, "Look, will you release this?" Yeah, and then so- you know, S- Sega are cool. They probably work with them. All right, yeah, good idea. Yeah, Sonic, uh, Sonic are pretty cool. <laughs> Sega, are pretty yeah, Sonic is cool. Sonic's cool as well. <laughs> but yeah, Sega are usually pretty cool with these things. So. You know, it would be nice, you know, if they did that or something. I mean, it looks like they've done quite a lot already. I mean, the, the video's mm. only six minutes long, but in the video, they're playing all different levels and stuff like that in different zones. Um, so this isn't something they've whipped up over a weekend. You know, they've done this over a good couple of months. Um, you know, maybe something will come of it, but I doubt it. We've seen a couple of things like this in the last couple of years, haven't we? I mean, Sonic in 3D is always a bit hit or miss for me. I think, you know, the, the original adventure games I loved, mm. which weirdly seem to have got a bit of a bad rep. I think we've mentioned that before over the last maybe 10 years or so. I see a lot of people slagging them off and saying they weren't actually good games, which kind of blows my mind because I remember those being like system sellers for the Dreamcast. Yeah, and people, I, I, when, yeah, when they came out in like 2000 or whatever it was, I remember them being, you know, well-loved, like people really liked them. Um, maybe people, people are just bitter from Sonic 06 or something. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yeah, like, tarnished I the like them, but the music was a bit meh. I know you liked it, Joe, but... Uh... The, the, the music is a product do, do, of its do, time. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you played as Amy, it was like, ha, 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 That little thing that followed you around. The chows. Well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or the chows. Chow yeah. garden and all that. But yeah, the time's right. I think they should do it. Absolutely. Come on, Sega. Give us what we want. So if you didn't check that out, we'll put that and everything else we talked about in our show notes. All the stories are there each week. You don't have to Google around or anything. You'll find them all on your podcast app or at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Peter Scott, the BBC micro legend who's behind games like Predator, SimCity on the BBC Micro, worked on Games Master and The Big Breakfast, the interview this week is brought to you with this amazing new book, Acorn, A World in Pixels by iDesign. Now, um, brace yourself, boys. That is the book landing on my table. This thing is a beast. 476 pages celebrating the visual games history of the BBC Micro and the Acorn Electron. With this case-bound book contained in a gorgeous slipcase, this thing just feels like premium quality. And it covers over 150 classic games. Interviews with people like David Braben and Ian Bell, who are behind Elite, Jeff Crammond, Peter Irvin, Tim Tyler, and also Peter Scott's in this book as well. And also covering stuff like key publishers, cover art and classic magazines as well. And really shows off the inimitable graphic style of the BBC Micro. So you can always tell when you see a BBC Micro, I think, that, you know, that's what machine it is, because it's got definitely got a unique look about it, I think. Oh, it looks absolutely beautiful. And, like, you know, that look as well was the kind of look of teletext. It was it was the look of me and Dan's youth, pretty much. And, you know, also the Acorn Electron. And, like, those systems, I, I didn't own one, and uh, I, I, I used them, though, at school and stuff. And when I saw a game on them, I was like, Jeez, this is absolutely amazing. So for me, reading this, like seeing all the games that are showcased on here, like Elite, Chucky Egg, Repton, um, you know, Exile, like it's it's really something I actually want to explore and look at the old back catalogue of. 
Yeah, I mean, last time we mentioned this, we've got a lot of interest on Twitter. Now, people outside the UK that were just interested in kind of seeing what we grew up with, you know, stuff that maybe they didn't see back in the day. So if you want to get hold of a copy of this book, please do it by using our exclusive discount code and you will save a massive £5 off the $29.99 RRP of Acorn, a world in pixels. And also, this comes with free postage and packaging to the UK. Bearing in mind, this thing has got quite a bit of weight to it. I wouldn't be surprised if the postage was about 20 quid, how heavy this is. So definitely check this out right now. Head to idesign.com. That is I-D-E-S-I-N-E.com. Or follow the link in our show notes. Use our exclusive discount code RETROHOUR and save £5 off your copy of Acorn, A World in Pixels. And of course, support the Retro Hour podcast by supporting our sponsors. Now, just before we get into our interview, let's give a huge thank you to our incredible patrons, the people who keep this show going each week, our favourite people, people we chat to on our monthly hangout, the people that we even do an exclusive podcast for each month. Oh, yeah. And they helped us get this set up as well. You know, the show would not be able to work without them. Like, for example, this morning, me and Dan were up at six in the morning because we were doing an interview with Australia. And... I would not the whole of Australia. <laughs> Australia, how are you doing? All right, mate. Um, uh, no, I, I just think like it's fantastic because we didn't have the flexibility to do this before, and with yeah. the Patreon support, we were able to buy these studios and then kind of you know just fall out of bed, get it done. I, I wouldn't have been able to get into Dan's work. I don't even think it would be open at that time where we used to previously record. So it's just amazing to have the support of you guys. And, you know, you guys get something out of it too as well. Yeah, I mean, the last 12 months, you know, have been challenging for everybody, obviously, but um, really, you know, we can't overstate enough that this podcast probably wouldn't be going today if it wasn't for the support of our patrons. You know, we couldn't have continued doing it when our studio got shut down last year. So uh, thank you so much for your support. And of course, you do get access to the Retro Hour After Hours, a new episode of which should be out next week. We're going to record another one soon. Another patrons hangout coming up as well. You also get a lot of other bonus perks in there. Get the regular podcast early, get it ad-free as well. And really... You can then tell your friends, you know that podcast Retro Hour? I make that happen each week. And we will give you a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big shout to other Retro Matt. John Treyholt. Rob Fairfield. Joe HD. Oh, Joe, you've gone high definition. And uh, (laughs) Wilburon McBain. Now, our Joe's only standard death. Yeah, this is Joe HD. You don't want Joe me HD. <laughs> so thank you so much for your support, guys. If you'd like to do the same, you'll find it on our website at theretrohour.com. Right next, we are joined by 8-bit legend and TV superstar Peter Scott is our special guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we have been covering um, a lot of programmers from the Acorn scene recently, you know, a system and obviously machines that were really, really popular in education and the machines that we all really wanted as a kid, even though they were quite expensive. And today we're going to be talking about some of the best games that were on the Acorn BBC Micro and also uh, some interesting television work that our guest this week has done over the years as well. So let's welcome him to the Retro Hour podcast, Peter Scott. Hello, Peter. Hello there. Great to have you joining us. Now, before we get into the games that you've worked on over the years, I mean, it would be quite nice just to kind of get your background. I mean, we always try and find out our guest geek credentials and, you know, kind of what initially got you into computers and gaming. Do you remember where your journey 
began? Oh, oh yes. Um, it was uh, Christmas 1981, um, ZX81. It would be, I suppose, the right year, isn't it? Um, and a, a Wibbly RAM pack. And I spent Christmas Day seven hours typing in a Lunar Lander game where the letter A came to the ground with lots of flickers and no noise whatsoever because obviously there was no sound on that thing. And then it was, I ran it once and then the RAM pack wobbled and then it, it died. And then I, it had to cool down in, in the porch for two hours. And that was my Christmas Day 1981. And from that, um, I thought, well, that's the future. <laughs> or maybe I didn't think that, but that that, that was my, that was my start anywhere. <laughs> Typing on that keyboard for that long doesn't sound fun. No, no. Well, well sort of pressing a piece of um, wibbly plastic, and but try not to wibble it too much because if the ramp the ramp pack wobble would would break everything, and and the, the you know the power supply you could cook an egg off. It was just it was just quite um, <laughs> high quality British uh, computers. Mind you, for like a hundred quid, which at the time was like an astonishing price, that there was actually a sort of proper computer with you know a tiny amount of memory and uh, and not much else but it was actually a computer and that sort of got me got me hooked somehow we've heard so many developers talk about that rampart wobble <laughs> just <laughs> losing stuff you know well, well, well my dad like um, being a very practical engineer like he was got some gaffer tape which obviously solves almost any engineering problem whatsoever you could sort of stick a tile to the space shuttle with a um, with gaffer tape and um that stopped it wobbly but obviously i could never remove it again <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people use blue tack, so that sounds more advanced than uh, most of us do. I think it would get quite hot and melt, and then you'd end up with sort of blue tack soup on the table as well. Though, so it might not be that much. <laughs> well, what about like games on the platform then? What like what were those games that really captured your imagination? Well, well initially, I mean, um, you know, being a poor northern lad, um, I couldn't really afford many. I mean, I had like a tip like ZX Spectrum games one, and but it was far from things like Jetpack and the Ultimate, um, you know, Attic Attack. All those fantastic games that turned later um they were quite primitive to, to begin with especially you know in black and white and with no sound um the hardware was pushed a little bit later on i mean there's a chess program in one care which is like, quite an achievement but um but there wasn't much and i learned programming just because you used to buy the magazines and type the programs in and then i eventually realized well this is a bit rubbish and i changed I, I sort of learned by osmosis really how what the commands did like like learning a language you know just speaking it and whatever and that's where i started to, to fiddle with other people's programs and then went on to write my own were, were you influenced by any of the arcade titles and stuff at the well, time i was i was influenced by sort of anything that was around really because um i mean it was, it was very new at the time it was sort of just emerging and you know dodgy blokes in the back of magazines selling things they'd written in their bedrooms it's, it sounds like a crime nowadays but um uh, and uh and what happened after the ZX81 is that, um, you know, I, I, I saved up some money and bought a slightly better machine. And, and basically I had almost every sort of 8-bit computer in the first in, in the first two years. Like I had about 16 different computers because they all died because they're all unreliable. Um, I didn't encourage any of them along a bit when I got bored of them or anything. That, that, that wasn't something that ever crossed my mind. But um, I had Oryx and a Lynx and a VIC-20 and... Um, you know, you know, I mean, this endless Dragon 32 um, and a Tandy TRS-80 and had all these different computers, like some of them secondhand, some of them new. And I used to see games on every machine, because, you know, having had every machine, I saw the games on every machine. So I try to rep my own games that looked like some of the nicest games on, on the machine I had. Um, like you know, taking inspiration from a different machine, just uh, and so 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 I became sort of aware of all the different sorts of games on the different machines. So 
and basically the brightest and shiniest, nicest looking thing I'd try and write on the current machine I had. Obviously, I'd fail most of the time, but, you know, um, you, you have to learn somehow. <laughs> I, I guess when you went into the uh, video game shops, you had a huge choice <laughs> with all, all these different machines. Yes, I mean, I, I got, for some reason, I, I bought my computers from Boots, the chemists, which had which just started selling them in Newcastle at the time. And um, so, you know, I, I take it back to, well, the my Oric 1, the enter key on the terrible little like keyboard that was like pills rather than actual keys it's stuck underneath the thing and the woman behind the counter was used to giving pensioners their prescriptions just sort of went oh, i'll give you your money back it seemed to be the easiest thing to do so you know there wasn't like what you call much support or service or anything um but you know i always wanted a bbc Mario, but i couldn't i couldn't afford one again like, you know miners kid up north no money um and it, it was uh, i got into the acorn stuff through the acorn electron which was you know the cheap the cheap, slightly cut-down machine. So that, that, that's how I got into the, the whole Acorn thing. Yeah, because I got an Acorn Electron quite later, actually. I remember, I think my dad got me one, like, off a friend in about 1995, you know, very late on. But I'd always had an interest in the Acorn machines from school and, you know, like yourself, could never afford them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Electron was actually, it gave you quite a lot of the BBC experience, didn't it, at the lower cost? It, it did. I mean, you, you know, if, if you sort of um, respected some of the hardware stuff, I mean, in the, the four-colour modes, like sort of mode five, the sort of the chunky but four-colour mode, it was about as fast and, and, and you know, it had the same amount of memory, everything was in the same place. The sound wasn't quite as good, but it was still passable and better than lots of machines. And the thing, for a machine of that time, it was quite quick, you know, especially running basic. It was much quicker running basic than some some of the others were using machine code. So it was a very capable machine. It didn't have things like teletext mode, which I can't, you know, I, I never particularly used much. And if I wanted to look at teletext, I could have looked it on the television, you know, and it would actually change occasionally. But um, And in the high colour and high resolution modes, um, the speed halved, which from a game's point of view was slightly difficult to cope with when, when you're dealing with an 8-bit machine. So, so, you know, I stayed cleared of those modes because of that. Um, also, it left you with like sort of 7K of memory, which was even less than the 16K you had with the other modes. So, you know, it was, it was still... And of course, the uh, the mechanical keyboard that I imagine was a lot nicer than typing on the ZX80. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, the keys actually moved. It's like, it's like a luxury, actually, a luxury. <laughs> So you mentioned that you, you know, typing in these listings um, for these games. How did you get into making games yourself? And I actually heard that you then managed to get your own listings published in magazines. What kind of happened there? Well, well again, I think the first one was like a sort of snake game, you know, like a Nokia phone type type thing. But I did a, I'd seen it on a Vic twenty on a grid. It was written by um, Jeff Minter, who became famous for Llamas and Commodore sixty fours a bit later. But it was just a snake game on the grid. But the, the great thing was the new stuff. So so. I, I, typed, I typed the snake game in, then made a grid and thought, well, that's vaguely different. Um, and then I thought, well, you know what? That's good enough to be in a magazine because so, so, I typed lots of them in. So, so I just sent it to a magazine and they printed it. And I got a check for 100 quid. I thought, oh, that's nice. They got some cheap content. People got games for nothing. It filled up nine pages or something because it was quite a long program. It was just in basic. But, um, and that, that was the, sort of the first thing I did. That. And, and so that's where I, I bought my Electron with that money. I'd used the friend's machine. I bought, I bought my Electron with that money. So it sort of, and, and when I, the money I got from magazines, I would spend on getting a better computer, you know, sort of investing in the, uh, <laughs> investing in the inverted commas business, which wasn't much of a business back then. But um, yeah, and so it was just a case of, and then I'd see other games and I, I saw Attic Attack, I think, on, on, on the spectrum and thought, well, I'll do a version of that. So I did a one screen version of that and sent it to a magazine. And eventually the magazines 
would ring me up and ask, oh, could, have you got a platform game? Have you got something? Like and I'd say, oh, well, I might have in a week's time. And I sort of, sort of started to work for the, the magazines and their publisher com- companies, just writing stuff. You know, they would ask for stuff or I'd have an idea for things. And that, that was how I got started, really. So that was how you kind of got your first games released by a software house, really? It was, yeah, like by, by the, the publishing arm of the uh, the magazine companies who, who put a few together and uh, released the, the, you know, well, eventually, I mean, they, they released things commercially on cassette um, after I'd sort of got my first game with the proper publisher, if you see what I mean. Um, and, and they went back through all my old games and the Peter Scott trilogy, a hilariously named and, and comedy-fronted sort of um, uh, cassette tape with three rather, like, you know, the bargain price of one ninety nine for three games or um, was like you know was some of the magazine games and did a few of them, but um, but yeah, but but from there I, I just I, I wanted to sort of try and get, break at the proper sort of uh, software stuff. And a mate of mine who lived down the road, uh, Gary Partis, he wrote a game in three weeks before doing our our GCSEs and earned two thousand pounds. And to a, you know sixteen year old two thousand pounds back in nineteen eighty whatever, that was a hell of a lot of money. And you know I thought well I'm about as clever as him. I could probably do something like that. So I thought I'd give it a go. And you know, it took a little bit longer than three weeks, but I, I did get there in the end. Yeah, because I mean, meeting someone else that was into computers, you know, I, I know that you and Gary, your kind of journey went from there, didn't it? You know, he worked in the industry as well. He, he did, yeah. We, we uh, you know, sort of accidentally, I mean, we, we never, apart from at school where we would, we did a, our computer studies A-level in the same class the first the first time that they taught the A-level. And Gary wrote a networking thing to share one disk drive between 30 computers, which just shows you the amount of, you know, 30 computers with a lot of computers, but the disk drives were more expensive. It's just a floppy disk drive between 30. And I wrote the word processor, and the Northumberland Education um, Authority bought it off us. I think they paid us 150 quid each. And it's used in every school in Northumberland for about five years. So, so they got a bargain too, you know, but, but I got an A from my A-level, that's Gary. So that's the only time we actually worked together. But um, yeah, we, we sort of made to school and then, you know, he started work for a company and, and I ended up working for the same company. So we ended up traveling like down to London to see the company and stuff together. And, uh, you know, we, we sort of worked together, worked for the same companies anyway for quite a while. And it was just handy. He was, he was more, he's a better programmer than me. And I was a bit more, you know, of the ideas and trying to make things a bit more playable. So, you know, we had sort of uh, complementary skills, really. Well, what were your early experiences like with software publishers? Um, the, uh, mixed, I have to say. So, I mean, again, dodgy blokes on the backs of magazines. There were like quite a few sort of wheelers and dealers who would sort of, you know, promise you the earth and then nothing would sell and you get no money and, and things like that. But, but on the other hand, you know, the, the foundations, I mean, um, towards the, the majority of my sort of uh, game stuff was published by Superior Software, who were based in Leeds and run by two brothers, uh, uh, Richard and Steve Hansen, who were just lovely, straightforward, very professional. Always. And the thing that they managed, they paid me royalties up until about 10 years ago for games I wrote 30 years ago. So, you know, I'm still getting not that much money, I have to say. But, yeah, I kept my old bank account up north, my student bank account. I kept it open because the occasional check would just sort of be paid into it from, from them. So, you know, that's all you can ever ask for, for when you work for people. But, but I also worked under a pseudonym for a little while because I was under an exclusive contract and then I didn't want to work for this company anymore. So I sort of inherited a new name and worked for someone else. The contract they signed me to wasn't particularly um, legal or, or a lawyer I took it to just howled with laughter at it because I'd signed it when I was 16 and all this sort of stuff. But um, um, the, the company I was going to go and work for was a bit worried uh, everything would be delayed by, by court threatens and all this sort of stuff. So I became a mysterious, differently named figure. 
And um, which was <laughs> it was quite good fun. I was, I was called Dylan, and I, I I signed the signature with a paw print. Um, <laughs> and um, and my my local bank account, bank was fine. They set up a bank account in the name of Dylan. They done Catherine Cookson. That wasn't her real name apparently. And so, so that's a, the only other person northeast with the pseudonym. Um, I don't think she signed with a paw print or anything. But um, so so when I got sent like royalty checks, I took them up and I had to sign the back of the check in front of them, and they'd go and check the, the signature. New new members of staff to the bank thought it was quite an extraordinary thing. This man who was called, had one name and a paw print. Um, but, you know, it was just a thing that I, I did that for like nine months and everyone sort of knew it was me, really. But, yeah, it was just one of those <laughs> silly things of use, I suppose, but, but to get out of a contract. Like Prince or Madonna or something. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly less glamorous. Well, like, imagine that, <laughs> that that up north in the 80s with bad hair and shoulder pads. Well, mind you, Madonna had bad hair and shoulder pads, didn't she? So I'm <laughs> not too sure about Prince. But, um, but yes, yeah, so it, it was quite, you know, it, it, you know, it was a funny anecdote <laughs> for the other programmers around. And uh, Superior were the kind of biggest software company on the Acorn at the time, weren't they? They were, yeah. Uh, you know, especially, uh, I suppose like I, I got successful just as the Beeb uh, and the Electrum were, were the, the height of their sort of popularity. But like anything, the machines, like, you know, they were popular for a bit and they weren't. Uh, and, you know, became less popular. But then they got lots of like the first conversion licenses. And I, I ended up being sort of the person that, people would turn up to and say, can you convert this to the BBC Magma? And if I liked the game, I always said yes. I never thought about how I would actually do it or anything. I just said yes, because if I didn't, you know, um, it wouldn't get done. I needed a deadline, and there were always very tight deadlines. So so I ended up converting lots of very big games, like trying to squeeze them into much less memory, <laughs> especially like later on when the you know, games from the Atari ST or the PC or whatever, to squeeze them into the 20K maximum that I had. Was, was, it, was, it was a challenge, shall we say. <laughs> Well, um, did that lead you to kind of dropping out of university because you had s- such a workload on? Well, well yeah, yeah, because um, I take a year off uni, sort of um, year before I went to uni, just to, just to sort of like try and make a go of this this uh, programming lark. And God bless Margaret Thatcher, which is not something you know, I'd normally say, but the um, the government paid me forty quid a week for a year. I showed them I had £2,000 in the bank, which I didn't, but my lovely bank manager, bless his heart, put £2,000 in the bank for a few days, so they checked and it was fine, then took it back again with a 10-quid fee. And so so I was on this enterprise allowance schemes like for small businessmen. There were me and 35 retired miners, and I was like, I was 18 and all fresh and everything, and 35 retired miners becoming window cleaners. So the, the, the people on the course were going, well, we can't tell you much, mate. We've got no clue. Just, just you know, just go home. Okay. So, but um, but the, so I was, I had some money from that, and then um, I went to uni, and that's it's sort of like typical, isn't it? Just two weeks before I went to uni, then all of a sudden I started getting more and more requests, lots of old games that I'd sent off. Suddenly people seemed to be interested in. And yeah, it, so so I did a year of sort of swapping between writing stuff and going to uni, but I wasn't really taking much notice at uni. And the final straw was they told me I wasn't a very good program. I should do physics or um, pure mathematics. And I said, I've got two games in the charts. Um, one of them's number like two in the, the overall video game charts. I said, look, I've even got a copy of the charts because I'm quite proud of this. And I showed it to uni. I said, I think I'll take a year off. And, and, and I took a year off and just didn't go back. <laughs> so I'm degreeless thanks to that. But, yeah. but, but I don't regret it in the slightest because, <laughs> you know, the computer course they were teaching, there was, there was me sort of programming machine code at night and then going and doing this course. And it, and it was of no relation to, to, to anything of any use that I could, I could see anywhere. So it's not that I was cleverer than them. It's just that they were teaching something that wasn't really designed for you know the modern well i say modern the old way of programming sort of uh, video games so so i dropped out 
I think, you know, education of that era, that was quite a common theme. I mean, I remember being like, you know, the, the kid at school that knew more about the computers than the teacher did. You know, I think there was a lot of that, wasn't <laughs> yeah, there? Definitely. I mean, when I was doing our computer studies A-level, like, there were six of us in the class. There were sort of three, like, nerds who were really keen and knew the stuff. The teacher was quite new at the stuff, but he was a lovely bloke, and you know, we sort of helped him out a bit. But it's things like we had to do a past paper for the A-level, and there was only one, so we did it twice. And then the, the, the education thought it was a little bit confusing that I scored 162% or something on that. But I'd done it before, so I kind of knew what the <laughs> answers were. And uh, a lot of marks came from the projects. And, and again, we, we helped the teacher out because, you know, he was, he was learning too. It was, it was quite quite an interesting thing, sort of, you know, sharing the burden with the teachers almost. So, mind you, I, I, the word process that I wrote, the teacher like, offered to test it for me, and he, he was writing a book at the time, and he he. He typed 40 pages of his book in. Then I realised there was a bug in the programme. It only saved the first letter from each page. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> Luckily, he didn't fail me or hit me or anything, but he was a little bit um, a little bit jittery the next day, I have to say. Well, I mean, uh, you know, focusing on the Acorn market for games is quite interesting as well. I mean, it's obviously back then it was quite a niche gaming platform, you know, in many oh, yes, ways. Yeah. And a lot of kids would be like, oh, I want to program on the C64 or the Specky. Why did you decide to stick with the, the Acorn market? Well, well, initially it was because it was quite, you know, it had a great basic that was fast and was sort of, you know, built in and very easy, to, very easy to use. And you could also just drop in little bits of machine code. You, you could just, you know, put little brackets around and type the commands in, uh, which is very unusual. I don't think any other of the machines had that. So it was, it was a good way to get into the, um, you know, the machine code, like bare-level bare programming stuff that you sort of had to do to write anything that was vaguely sort of commercially playable as, as a game. And that was the first thing that I talked about. And then the hardware was quite, you know, quite powerful, not wonderful. I mean, it didn't really have things like the 64 had lots of sprites and you know and and lots of sound channels and stuff but the brute force of the machine we just made it quite interesting and the sort of people who are programming were the you know a mixture of sort of the hardcore uh, really you know hack, hacker type programmers um and some some quite interesting sort of characters like the, the posh kids shall we call them which obviously as you can tell by my voice isn't me but you know you're david brabens and all those sort of people who, who wrote elite so, so it, was, it was an interesting mix of people very interesting i have to say so, so it was a, a combination of lots of different reasons and uh, and basically i was just being paid you know quite well to do the stuff i was doing in the end so i just stuck at it till the the very very end until <laughs> almost the machine was covered in dust in the corner so well did you feel it was important to make games that worked on the bbc micro and the electron as well well, well because i started on the electron which was again quite unusual um, i always tried to make the, the the games work properly on both I, i'd worked out a, a little techie way of, of sort of running the same program on both just by by limiting a few things technically um, and using a certain screen size and a certain format, I, I could basically 99% of the program would work on both machines. And because I didn't use the very high resolution modes, because you know you'd end up with not enough memory for the game, um, it, it would run fast enough on, on both of them. And so, so you know, I went to you know the people I was working for. I said, look, if I limit the screen like this, we'll do this. I can do an electron version. It'll not cost any more money. It'll hopefully sell a few more copies, and it'll be as good as the BBC version. Because often the electron versions were a bit cut down, or they have garbage on the screen because there's hard any memory and the, you know and and did look a bit rubbish and 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 I you know out of pride of sort of coming from that part I thought well I, sh- I should really sort of do my best so even up until the very end I would be do- was doing the electron versions as well as the the BBC versions just it was a few thousand extra sales so that that didn't hurt, hurt anyway well as well as doing your own games you worked on conversions like which one did you prefer developing 
I love the creative process of thinking something up. I mean, one, the first game I did for Spear was called Spy Cat, which was based on the, the spy catcher book, a, a, a British spy who had sort of, you know, um, retired and written his memoirs. I don't think Electronic Arts would do an international game like this anymore, but, and he was in court in Australia, and there was all this sort of fuss in the press. So so I just thought Spy Catcher, Spy Cat. Okay, so I did a little cat in, in a Mac uh, and, and a funny hat, and he was a spy going around Downing Street and stuff. His little platform game was like quite good fun. Um, uh, you know, so I so, so I did enjoy the creative process like that. On the other hand, the conversion stuff was more of an intellectual thing because things I wouldn't program myself, um, I had to program to, you know, to to make these games work, like three D stuff, which is really hard on a on an eight bit machine and all all that sort of thing. So so I enjoyed this sort of the programming challenge of that. So it's a mix of both. The, the the conversions also being big names, there was big nice adverts and stuff. The the media was you know it was covered everywhere and and also it helped the us the the BBC Micro and Electron owners who who felt a bit left out of of the big commercial games market. It made it just seem a bit more like you know we were getting all the good games too. So so from a sort of just a, a snobbish point of view, I quite wanted to to do that just to to get those games to come out. Well, what was the process of creating games for you then? Did you have any like specific sets of tools that you'd use? Um, towards the end, I, I sort of written my own basically because there were there wasn't really much around. I mean, there, there were a few bits and pieces, but I had my own sort of level editors and sprite editors and and you know that that kind of thing. But it was often, you know, just down the pub thinking up ideas uh, with a couple of mates or just throwing stuff around. I, I wrote a football game because someone said, there's no good football game where you can actually play the game and do the management side. You, you do the management stuff or the player stuff. Uh, so so I wrote one that combined the two together. And mind you, I was as good as foot, at football on video games as I am in real life, as in rubbish. So so uh, <laughs> and I was perfectly well aware of that. But but you know, but again, that was quite it sold quite well, and it, you know, it got great reviews everywhere, and people really enjoyed it. So um, and and I, I did do a lot of cutesy platformy sort of explorey puzzly sort of games because those were the sort that I really liked playing. So you know, I just ended up writing quite a lot of them. Um, so. Uh, and it was the most popular genre, I suppose, at the time. Probably, you know, um, a lot on a lot of the machines. It still is. So you did a uh, Predator as well. That was a huge license. What was it, it like working on it? That was one of the sort of it was a last minute thing, and it turned up. I had four weeks and three days from start to finish to do the game. I was sent a copy of it on the Commodore sixty four and nothing else. And it was a cassette copy. Um, so I loaded up in 64 and played. I had no idea what was going on towards the end when the little dot zoomed in. I hadn't seen the films, which, I, you know, I watched the film. It was a little even more confused but because the games didn't seem to fit with the film whatsoever. Um, and uh, I just got on with it uh, and I finished it. I mean, I didn't sleep much for about four weeks. Um, uh, Red Bull hadn't been invented back then, uh, but it was, it was just coffee. And I didn't think it was, it, technically it looked okay. I got parallax scrolling in it and I, I copied everything apart from the last level, which I couldn't understand. So I just made a one up myself um, and it was released just before Christmas and it's sold by the bucket load because I had Arnie on the cover and, you know, a big license and everything. But again, the, the, the company was licensed off. I don't think they ever even loaded, they sent a copy, but I don't think they ever loaded it up. Um, they just got a nice fat check for it. So everyone was happy. I, I, I got a little annoyed in some ways because I thought, well, you know, it's not very good and it sold really well. 
and I shouldn't complain. I've, you know, but by the day, the, the pay rate then must have been yeah you know, astronomical because it's it's sold so well. And I was paid, paid royalties on every copy. I was like, oh okay, but but you know, part of me, my young naive sort of wanting everything to be as good as possible. Part of that died when I did that game, I have to say, because, you know, um, I'd written much better games before and <laughs> afterwards, and they didn't sell quite as well. And, you know, and it, it did sort of slightly, well, it put me in good stead for, for working in commercial television, shall we say, <laughs> which I did later. Well, that's the thing then. I mean, you know, uh, the power of having a license. I mean, it was kind of new to gaming then. Obviously, Ocean kind of took it and ran after that. But, I mean, I, I guess a lot of the time these companies just wanted that license on something because the new people would buy it and, you know, really didn't really matter whether the game was great, I guess, to the publishers, but obviously to the people buying it. Yeah, it did. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was it was just the big names, and, and you know, Predator was a movie as well. Which again, those, those things were, you know, um, it's funny. Like when I when I was working on on uh, Games Master, the TV show, um, um, I was working with a, a guy called Richard Wilcox. He'd written Airwolf um, for Ocean, uh, and, it, yeah. and it was quite, you know, and I'd actually nicked the tune from Airwolf to put it in a, um, in a different game. I played it backwards because I, I was always having trouble with music. I have absolutely zero musical abilities or propensities. Or, you know, in every single way, I sing flat, I've got no, but, and I, and in those days, obviously, no one else did anything. You just did everything yourself from designing the cover to, to writing the music, the graphics, and all that sort of stuff. And I had such trouble with music, and everyone always howled at how bad the music was in my games. And I used to get public domain tunes and play them, like, literally play them backwards or miss every other note out or speed them up or slow them, just desperate to try and get some sort of noise out of a computer that didn't sound dreadful. Um, and it's quite funny. You know, you, oh, yes, you nicked that for the, your platform game. It's like, so it, it's, it's odd. I did work with someone from a, for who'd also been converted. With, those ones were looked at very closely by all the, the TV companies. And I, I wrote um, a Nintendo game uh, based on Crust of the Clown. Like, so you, as you imagine, there was Fox and the, the Matt Groening and all these high executives in the States. And there was me in my bedroom up north in, in my little miners' cottage, just, you know, trying to explain on the telephone, like, no, I can't use any other yellow. Nintendo only has two yellows and they're both wrong. <laughs> Well, I mean, you did another game, another System 3 game, actually, that you converted, Last Ninja 2. What was kind of the story there? Um, it had done very, very well on the um, on the C64, and it was like a 3D. And I think it was the first multi-level, multi-load thing that I did, um, which, which was good fun. Although, again, because you sort of did everything yourself, playtesting through on a cassette to, to all 165 levels or whatever, it took eight hours to get to the last screen. And, of course, there was a bug on the last screen, and I nearly went mad for two weeks just loading this thing in. I have to play all the way through just to get to this bit where, where the guy would fall through the floor. Um, yeah, I got so demoralised. I, I rang and someone I said, I can't do this anymore. And so, so they sent a man up to, up to help me play the game. <laughs> and he was very tired towards the end of that thing. But we found the bug and it got fixed. It was a bug in the hardware, actually. It was a, a bug in, in Acorn's sort of um, loading routines. So um, I reported that to the company and then went to bed for two two weeks. But um, And it was such a nice game because it was uh, it, it looked very pretty and it, it, it had a mixture of fighty stuff and puzzly stuff and isometric 3D and things. And again, I said yes to, to it because I'd seen it in the magazine thought it looked very pretty. Uh, and then they did the usual thing of just the game turned up with nothing else. But luckily, I'd bought every computer magazine going, and one of them had a huge sort of, you know, cut out and keep map, which I used to base my games on magazine information more than anything I was sent, really, because 
Um, again, the t- oh, time wow. time was tight, and you know, the, the, and the information that would would eventually turn up, but it, it would always be incompatible. You know, graphics from one machine to another, you couldn't actually use them because they'd be the wrong format, the wrong size, the wrong shape, and and so and 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 if you're sent a disc on an Amiga, like to try and get that onto a BBC Micro via via what the leads, no, that'll never work. Um, so it was all all a bit sort of you know, oh, it was easier to start again. So so uh, yeah. I would just start fresh every time and just just uh, just give it a go. Well, another game that you converted that I know probably the game you're most well known for on the BBC was the conversion of SimCity that got highly praised. How did that come about then? How did you get to port that game? Well, well it, it was another thing that um, I was told to the uh, uh, superior software just about and say, well, what sort of games do you think we should do? I said, well, yeah, there's lots of games on the PC, said, and there are things that aren't really games; they're sort of more like simulations. And I'd seen SimCity on, on actually on the Commodore sixty four, like sort of a little while before, but the PC version had just come out and was getting lots of praise. I said, of course, it would never fit in the BBC Micro. The two guys and my two bosses, Spear, went very quiet on the phone. I went, what, why are you saying that we've just got the rights to it? I went, oh, okay. <laughs> and going, I said, it'll be a bit um, difficult. Do you think you can do it? I said, well, you, this is, you, you know my normal policy. Yeah, you also yes. And then you worked out afterwards. Are you sure, though, Peter? Are you sure? I went, yes. <laughs> uh, and th- then that was the first time I'd ever been sent everything, like all the algorithms, all the stuff. And... You know, going through the code was fascinating. You know, you plant a tree, and then that helps very, very small amounts to gentrify the area. Uh, the, so the the property price go up, the people like it, but then the taxes have to go up to pay for that tree. You've got water, you've got to look after it, you've got to prune it every so often. And being an American game, if you put the taxes up, oh dear, no, no one likes that very much. Uh, and then you know, and I found I went through all the algorithms, and it was you know bad. Low taxes equals good. High taxes equals bad, which again I understand and I I know, but well, it's not quite as cut and dried as that, is it? So so I did fiddle with the algorithm slightly, make it slightly like more appropriate to um British audience because that's who I was aiming it at. But again, I, I worked I worked rather hard on that, and people just were like, like looking at me, going, "Are you writing whatever?" I I still kind of you know it, even today um. I have dealings with with tech companies that rhyme with frugal and maple and and other such companies and and um you know um the icon for an app on the Mac is seven times larger than all of SimCity on the BBC Micro, just like a standard icon. And that's you know, and, and and we had I had 150 icons in that in that game. So yeah, it's it's quite hilarious how how uh, how little memory there was to to fit these things in. But I got there in the end. Lot, lots of stuff sort of happened by osmosis. It's sort of things that I didn't directly connect together managed to somehow connect themselves together. So so you know, maybe it's a bit fortuitous, maybe it's just sort of a, a bit random, but um, it worked at the end, and yeah, I was very pleased with the final product. We even got Godzilla in there, so that was all right. It's good getting the disasters in there, definitely. Um, <laughs> did did Will Wright kind of talk to you at all, or, or yes, did uh-huh, you yeah, have yeah. any communication with? Yeah, I was talking to them. Um, it was via the, the European license was held at the time by Infogrames, a French company. So, 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 so I was told occasionally a French person would bring up, and you know, my, my very bad Geordie schoolboy French wouldn't really help very much. <laughs> They'd be more confused than if I just spoke English to them. Uh, but I spoke to Will Wright a couple of times, like just uh, just asking a couple of you know more specific, al- algorithmic questions and about the, the disaster things, which were totally random. So it was, it was quite an interesting sort of. 
conversation about that. And they were very helpful. And, you know, um, and he actually he got a BBC micro sent over to have a look at it. And he sent me a very short letter, which you know, I, I did have friends at the time just like saying, like, brilliant, well done. How, how do you fit it in that much memory? It's tiny. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so I was quite pleased with that. Because um, before I, I, I did sort of things like SimCity and stuff, I, I considered myself a competent programmer, but I, I was, I mean, there were other people who were technically much better than me who, who knew hardware better, who could, you know, program right down the metal better than me. I was normally, I could get by and, um, you know, I tried to make games that are playable and looked as pretty as possible, and just because that's what I kind of thought games should be. But, um, but you know, after I did some city, I, I was a bit chuffed. I thought I'd done something a little, a little bit sooner, a little bit better than most. <laughs> you did another uh, Infogrames game as well, which was a uh, hostage. Um, well, well, that came it was, it was like a package deal that was like the it used to happen sometimes with the conversions. You, you get like a big title you wanted, like you know, like um. Uh, Sim City, but there'd be another game that maybe wasn't as big a name. That, that well, can you do that one as well? And you get both of them. And yeah, I'm sure there's like some sort of business reasons why that that worked more efficiently for for both companies. So, so but Hostage was like it was quite a. It had a 3D maze part. It had sort of a swinging on a road part. And it had a platform game part. But luckily, I'd, you know, I'd written those three genres of games before, so I, I could like dust off what you'd now call a game engine and like what then I called bits of program lying around in the cupboard. And, you know, I, I could sort of put the whole together quite quickly. So, so it was, you know, it was reasonably efficient from, from everyone's point of view. It was really interesting games. Like, you know, even though it was written by some bloke in, in his bedroom up north, it, it sort of came out quite French. So I was, I was pleased with that part. <laughs> well, you also did um, game development diaries for magazines as well. And actually, you know, people can read that in the Acorn A World in Pixels book. There are a few pages of your diaries in there. Why did you decide to do them then and keep records of, of what you were working well, it, on? It was, it was sort of... A, a, I quite yeah. It was publicity initially. You know, I, I spoke to the journalists involved and because I'd, I'd come up like via the magazines. I knew most of them. You know, we'd been out for a few drinks together, out like uh, when we had met up and everything. And you know, and they were always looking for things to put in the magazines. And it, it just seemed like you know I could publicise something I was writing. And and they were, but also you know I was thinking sort of longer term. I'd always sort of thought I'd wanted to be inverted commas a writer. I didn't quite know what about, but yeah, I, I just quite like like the whole process of writing and stuff. Um, and this was a way to get things published. And so I, 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 I did that, got things published. That got me, sort of, you know, known within the magazine. So, so I would then start writing another thing. I started writing reviews of weird late-night satellite TV shows in a sort of a comedy style for, for satellite magazines, satellite TV magazines. So, and that, then I got some work for The Guardian and for magazines in London. So it was sort of a, a stepping stone just to do a few different things. So I was, I was ending up, you know, watching TV and being paid for that. So, so I was quite pleased with being paid to watch telly. So the diaries had started off just, you know, they'd ring me up, they knew me, so they, they, they you know, and often they said yes and didn't have to come up with the stuff. So it was, it was, it was quite a, I enjoyed it though, I really enjoyed it. Must be interesting all these years later to look back on them as well at the process that you're working through. Embarrassing more than anything else. <laughs> Especially ones that come with pictures of me with my um, amusing comedy poem and, and humongous glasses and, oh dear, uh, fashion up north, 1985, not not a nice look. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, it's all there. And, you know, I kind of know that stuff from the past. Well, nowadays with the internet, it never goes away, but it, you know, but pictures keep coming up with me and it's always the same three terrible pictures and because there's no good pictures in those days uh, and no digital software to, to edit them or anything so so you know it's it's quite it's a little bit sort of oh god not that picture again but um i read stuff and you know 
because it is it did was thirty five ish years ago. So so you know my memory folders, yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and then it reminds me of um of of the strange circumstances that that happened or the, or the odd things that happened there. And so 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 that, that, that that's uh, yeah, it's all record in the past, isn't it? Was the acorn market kind of a, a difficult, tough place to be in the early nineties? Yes, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was a sort of a. a it wasn't. It wasn't dying instantly, but it was just it just one of those markets where you know you could tell that there wasn't much much time left. I, I kept, you know, I was offered other other jobs. I I learned how to program the Amiga and the PC. Everything in those again early nineties PC stuff was you know VGA and purple and cyan and 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 four hundred different graphics cards and three hundred sound cards and it just seemed like you know I've been used to writing on one machine with a few variants and it was all very very confusing and very very nasty so yeah so so I stuck it out and and to be honest you know the superior software made it sort of possible to earn enough of a living to, to make it worthwhile so so I kept going and and they kept offering me interesting projects the conversions were quite interesting. Um, um, so, so I just I just kept at it, but it, w- it was early nineties. It was starting to get. I was thinking, well, in, in a couple of years' time, I'm, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage, even though my house had cost twelve thousand pounds because it was the olden days. Um, so, so I was just thinking, mm, um, and I started to look around for some other things to do. So, you know, and um, I, I did a few other programming gigs. I, did, I wrote some business software, which was a boring thing in the history of the world. Uh, and it paid very well, but I wasn't that interested in the money. <laughs> there's, there's some things I would rather not do. Um, and I managed a small team of programmers up north, um, which was quite an interesting time. One of the programmers had to fake his own death because he owed some money to the tax man. But yeah, and and it's a... Oh wow! We had to hold a pretend funeral. It's all a little bit, you know, sort of um, uh, frat boys or <laughs> silly blokes up north. Um, and I was technically their boss, but not really because they were all mates. So there was, yeah, much mugging around, and and lots of very good games got got written in, in somewhere in the background. Um, so so yeah, so so towards the end, it did get very difficult. And Superior, they were about the only people still creating, but. Nowadays, I was like, I think there's probably more people writing games now than on the on these machines than there was like in the in the early nineties. There's just me then, I think. But you know, now there seems to be like a huge retro community, which I didn't really know anything about until very recently. Yeah, you must have been one of the last guys at Superior doing games, and I guess at that I think stage. I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, I was definitely you know because they had this bunch of the bunch of SimCity, and there's a couple of other things I, I did afterwards, and. Um, and there's some talk of converting some of my original stuff to different machines, which I, I looked into. In the early 90s, the, the small companies like Superior were being gobbled up by the bigger companies, you know, the successful ones on other machines and everything. And, and Superior weren't really interested in that. So, so you know, we came to a sort of mutual decision in the end that, that I, I just moved to move on. Um, but the, the, the great thing was that it had a very, very long tail. Things like SimCity just kept selling and kept selling. Not in very big amounts. You know, I couldn't you know, live off it, but it certainly paid for a few nights down the pub, um, even 20 years later. So <laughs> I, I raise a glass to, 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 to them getting right to that one. Yeah, I think you know every BBC micro owner bought a copy of it. I imagine so. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's the thing when you've got a, like a small market, but people are still quite keen, you know, on 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 games, especially games they can see on other things. They, they want to feel included in, in everything. They do sell, and and you know they, they could charge a little bit more money because they they, they could, didn't sell as many, but they were still selling quite a few thousand um, of 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 original titles and, and stuff and a big title but still you know towards the end sell 20 30 40 000 copies so, so yeah that's as long as you don't spend forever writing it and have a team of 100 doing 3d graphics and 100 million dollar budget or anything like they do nowadays um th- then you know you're okay 
You know, I'm quite interested as well when you mentioned that you worked on platforms after the Acorn. You know, you mentioned the NES there. Uh, tell us a bit more about this Simpsons game then. How did that come about and what was kind of the story with it? What well, was that game? One of the companies that I've worked with in my early sort of days on the BBC Micro or Degenic, they had a, a, a game called Rat Trap, which was like one of those lemming style games where you sort of herd a bunch of rats around like, yeah, and they all move independently and everything. Uh, and via a very strange bunch of coincidences that, yeah, and trips to America and all sorts that, that I didn't really know anything about at the time, um, uh, it got, that rat trap game became Christie's Super Funhouse on the SNES and on the Commodore Amiga, uh, and you know via claim in the US. And uh, so, and so they weren't on the NES at the time. And uh, so up north, when I was running the little programming team, um, you know, we had a guy who did the NES. He ran away about two weeks into, into the project. He just decided he couldn't do it and ran away. And me having run the whole place. I said, well, you know, there was no one else to do it. So I thought, well, I, I know the, the process uh, like behind all this. So I took the, the development system home and all the books and, and, and sat there for, and puzzled it out. Uh, and then the, the um, Audigenic flew in um, uh, another programmer person to help me out. And um, you know, he ended up being a genius who, who sort of knew the Nintendo upside down and backwards. And uh, so I ended up doing all the algorithmic stuff and he ended up doing all the programming stuff. And we, we made a quite a good team. And it was like three very intensive months of, of working. The Americans kept paying us more and more money to try and finish it on time because they wanted it out. You know, and we were working our asses off, but, we, you know, we, we worked even, you know, we worked harder. But every week's delay was was seeming to, like, pay us an extra 50 quid a week. So it was it, it became, like, almost comedic, the, the stuff at the end. We finished, like, exhausted and everything the game that came out in the states won, won awards did very well over there but in the uk the nes was like sort of the snes had just come out and was was taking over so so no one released it in the uk i was a little bit disappointed i'd written a game yeah and the simpsons was new at the time and it was the the most fabulous about 700 episodes in it's still going but it's a yeah um it was the most fabulous thing and i and i, I, I spoke about graining a couple of times when he wasn't shouting me about the wrong color yellow um, he was he was a very very good and very very interesting bloke, um, and yeah, you know, it was quite a thing. It was like later on in my TV career, I worked on big co-productions with American companies, and I, I can say it was things were a little bit more um, uh, corporate and awkward. Whereas whereas that was really good fun. I really enjoyed it. So it was uh, it was an interesting process. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, back then that was right in the middle of you know like Bart Mania, you know early 90s I remember being a kid and you know we, we had Sky TV and like my mates had all come around to watch The Simpsons it was such a hot property back then I mean were they quite protective about what you could and couldn't do with the characters I mean were well, they kind of like you know, up to Disney level where they have all these rules well, they did have a bunch of rules but um, I think because they were, they were slightly anarchic you know the whole idea of the programme was was a bit naughty Bart was especially was, was, was you know, the anti-hero and because this was like Christy mainly I mean it had the other Simpsons characters in but only in minor roles and there couldn't be any speaking because you couldn't use the voice Voices and all this sort of so it's, it's mainly crusty and they had the right to do anything they fancied with crusty um because because that's when i found out that homer was supposed to be in, in the original series homer was going to be revealed to be crusty the clown at the end because you know and then if you think of them they look very similar and that was like a little thing yeah. they did little easter egg they put in that they decided like after it was commissioned for the, the opening season not to bother with but that was mentioned at the time so, so i thought well we're right the game with homer in it uh, who was always the coolest and stupidest and best character but uh but no they, they were fine actually um it was just about that pesky color yellow that was all that they really bothered about Oh, yeah, I remember uh, even doing an assembly at primary school and they sat us all down and said, this is a really good new TV show and showed us The Simpsons on a small television and we all sat there like engrossed. Um, You made the move into TV and got a job on Games Master. So 
what was the story there? How did you make the transition? Things were coming towards the end. I finished the the acorn stuff, and and we done we done the, the nest thing, and I was basically sort of thinking, well, what do I do next? And and I had a, a few offers to to go and work in like for other games companies and everything, and I was like, hmm. the thing I really want to do was like be a games designer, but it would, that, again, that didn't really exist as a job title back then because you were programmers, and there were just about graphic artists emerging and and people specialising in this that and the other. The bigger companies and and you had those little people, but the games design part was normally still like what programmers did um and um i saw this advert in the guardian said like new t- games tv service launching in nine months time um apply here and i was like it's a tiny little advert and i thought oh well i know games so so i sent a comedy cv off and you know a, a jokey thing with my my phone number in it and everything i didn't really expect anything my answer machine at the time because i was you know a 23 24 year old bloke said like hello peter's too busy having drugs and taking sex, sorry, taking drugs and having sex down to the phone right now and leave a message. And this really strange woman left a message like, going, um, uh, um, if you're taking drugs, I'm not employing you. <laughs> Come for an interview anywhere. I, I assume it's a joke. I have no sense of humor. I'm from New Zealand. Like, so I rang, I rang back then, like very late at night, just thinking I'd get the machine. I got the, this, this strange woman who was Jane Hewland, the boss of uh, the company you made games master she said come for an interview tomorrow it's got to be soon i said but it's starting in nine months time she went come for an interview tomorrow so i did i, I had to wait six hours to be interviewed after the game with five in the morning um she said right I, I don't know quite what i said it was all a little bit of a blur i remember seeing dominic diamond across the room thinking this celebrity is here uh, i must have said the right thing because she says you start and you start now there's your desk over there you know, offered me a tiny little wage, um, uh, but you know, and part of me just went, "Oh well, okay, then why, I'll give it a go." And uh, three weeks later, I was writing lines for Dominic to say on the television, and Patrick Burke to say as Games Master. Three months later, I was producing a show that I thought up, and a year later, I was head of development for the entire company. So, so something sort of clicked, I think. Um, and Auntie Jane Hewland, bless her heart, still has no sense of humour. She she doesn't live very far away from me, but um, <laughs> otherwise, she employed me and like give, give me my break and tell you for which I'm eternally grateful. But what my games experience meant I had I knew some of the people in, in the games industry. Obviously, having a comedy Geordie accent is quite unusual in television, apart from them, Ant and Deck. Um, so, yeah, so so people remembered me when I rang them up. I was uh, my first job was to research cheats. You know, the press A, B, C, D. And I was astonished that the children didn't actually come up, ask the questions themselves. You wrote them and gave them to the children. I was like, oh, okay. You took their, their questions anyway and you, you researched into them, <clears throat> um, which I soon found out didn't really happen. But, but and, and then from then I was just working in telly. And then the game service that they mentioned was Games World on Sky, which um, I start, did start six months later. And I worked on that for across hundreds of episodes from live shows to game shows. I employed David Walliams when he was fresh out of university to be in a in a silly little show where he dressed up like a lady and told lots of silly jokes, um, and um, you know. And so I apologised to the world for David. No, I don't really. I mean, he was he was David Walliams is a very unique man. He was always much funnier than he should have been, uh, and he he made our show rather rather, rather better than it should have been. And uh, I, I'll always be eternally grateful. We had a great old time worked on that show because um, we. And then I thought of I said, can we do a sitcom? And Sky sort of went, yeah, if you want. Your, your budget's tiny. I went, okay. So we made a tiny a sitcom with Walliams in it about video games because you know why not. Um, and um, so, so yeah. But Games Master was great fun because you know it was just at the, when it was sort of becoming really popular, and there was a bit of money in the budget. The first series was, there was almost no money, but the, the second series, and there's a bunch of blokes, most of whom were northern, most of whom were in London, didn't have much of a, hadn't worked in telly before, um, and we had a great old time. It was, it was great fun. 
Do you have any um, particular memories of Games Master and Games World? Like any parts that stood out for you? Well, uh, you know, there are bits of the sort of uh, Great Galaxy Games Master being filmed and, and just like you know standing on set, like wow, and then yeah. I think who was that? Take that were there, but they weren't really very famous. Uh, they were just this, you know, this this strange band who wore rubber and stuff. It was quite an odd thing. And uh, and and Dominic was Dominic Dyer was a great old chap. In that, you know, we were down the pub at lunchtime and in the evening. So so that sl- slightly makes it more difficult to remember. Um, I was put in charge um, of series three, which is when Dominic <laughs> had decided that being sponsored by McDonald's was not something that fitted with his um, his morals. <clears throat> Uh, and 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 so um, Dexter Fletcher was uh, the presenter for that very strange series. That was, and we filmed the first part in Oxford Prison. And I was always the children were going to fall off the balconies and down into the uh, into the atrium. Uh, and we filmed thirteen episodes there. We went back to film the second thirteen episodes, except they recommissioned the prison, so there's prisoners in it. So we couldn't really film. So we had to film somewhere else with no notice. So it was a nightmare, like the of logistics to do. But um, it was good fun. And Dexter was a great old chap, and now he's a Hollywood director, isn't he? But um, uh, just like sort of the, the vague things of you know just writing amusing lines about vague celebrities turning up, Vic and Bob, and and uh, all all sorts of of people. And Games World was like this little show that used to get a million viewers every night on Sky One at six thirty. It was on every day, um, and it, you know we used to get letters from Bosnia from the, the the British troops who were over there before it was scrambled and became digital and everything. It's astonishing and and. I employed Jet from Gladiators in a rubber dress, who was the games mistress, because obviously I'd worked on Games Master, so you know, have to be fair. So we had the games mistress, uh, and she, she wore this tiny little rubber dress, and I had a puncture repair kit because it kept bursting. <laughs> uh, and uh, she, she was very popular <laughs> with the audience, as you can imagine, and she made lots of innuendos. Her first line was, welcome to my little slot, she said, smiling to camera. And she was fabulous. She had no idea about video games, to be honest, but she was great on camera. Um, and... Um, and I had rattled. They let me do what I, you know, what I fancied doing, sir. And then I went to live TV and did Bouncing Dwarfs and Topless Darts and Head of Stupid Ideas was my actual job title. I mean, you uh, can't get you were better. responsible for those. Then. I apologise <laughs> in, like, in every single way for everything that we ever did. And that but went so, on to Channel 5 as well, didn't it, on the uh, early it, days it, after it, live TV? Yes, it did. Um, it, we did the weather in Norwegian, where the lady in an evening frock would tell you the weather in Britain in Norwegian and then tell you the weather in Norway in English. I mean, I don't know why that, that was a, not my idea, uh, Stuttering newsreaders, that was another thing we did. It took rather a long time for them to read a two-minute news bulletin. But, you know, it was it was just, it was a silly sort of jolly little cable station and, and hardly anyone watched. And it was, people were thinking of silly ideas. I, I thought of an idea, it would be on air in 10 minutes and, you know, and then it'd be rubbish. Was, was uh, Sasha Baron Cohen involved in that as well? Um, he, he was there for a bit of the time and um, um, Richard Thingy off of Blue Peter uh, and all, all sorts of people who went on to become proper normal presenters. Uh, um, also, Esther McVeigh, who I think is a Tory MP now. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't a Tory MP then, but um, but it was it was a strange chance reporter ran it for a bit, but then left because um, my my one suggestion to try and save money was why does things have to be live because that's quite expensive. It was called live TV, but no one seemed to care, so so they fired half the staff and then pre-recorded everything in big batches to save money, <laughs> which didn't make me particularly popular in, in the the canteen, I have to say. But uh, yeah, it was it was a very interesting time, a very strange sort of you know like like late nineties sort of strange culture people used to nick our cameras because we couldn't afford any security and stuff and you know you, we made more money selling the bluebirds from the ca- <laughs> when the cameras were nicked than anything else <laughs> when the news was on someone dressed up like a bunny in the background and like sort of did 
like comedy gestures, apart from when Princess Diana died, when yeah, we had to wear a black armband, dressed up as a giant bunny. Um, none of this makes any sense now. I look back at it. The programming stuff makes much more sense than this. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I love about you know your time on Games Master as well is you were actually awarded the worst hairstyle of the series, which I thought was quite an achievement when Jazz Rignall was a regular guest on the show. Yes. I've got to say, I mean, yeah, like uh, yeah, that was on the final episode because um, uh, because they filled me. Re- I'd been in charge of organising reviews, and a person at Rio didn't turn up, and so you know they put me on to do it because that's what you do. You you have to suffer by going on screen. It was the Christmas Eve episode, I think the highest rated episode ever. There I was, and I'd gone up north to see my family that Christmas. There I was on screen, and they used the same line. They ended up putting the same line about each. This is about as playable as a box of used tissues, which makes no sense whatsoever. It was the end of a 12-hour filming day. I was exhausted. And they used the same line three times. My family looked at me going, what do you say that for? I'm like, oh, God, the most embarrassing thing, you know, thing. That was my television career in front of them. But, um, but yes, but um, all, all, I had quite a, a – I was very glad when my hair fell out because it was always causing me trouble. And um, yeah, I've appeared in a couple more episodes just as like, commentating and doing stuff again when other people didn't turn up. Uh, uh, and uh, my only defense is it was the end of a long day and it was sticking up all over the place. So yes. Uh, and, and the nineties and blonde bits and ginger and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> well, Peach, I know it's not gaming related, but you know, we need to ask you about this because you know, such nostalgia, the big breakfast that, I mean, for people outside the UK, that was a show that everybody watched on TV before you went to school or college back in the day. What was your involvement with the big breakfast? Well, well after I'd, I'd done Bouncing Dwarfs and had sort of uh, written off my television career so I'd never be director general of the BBC after all that kind of thing, I'd started my own little company. I called it Impossible Television. Someday all good television will be impossible, I said. Um, that was my slogan. And tomorrow's television, tomorrow. That was the other slogan. And um, Plan 24 sort of funded me, me setting myself up as a company. So, so uh, we did some, like, we wrote some interactive games that, that were played on The Big Breakfast, uh, a dr- driving game called Skid Marks. You can sort of sense the humour, the, the level of humour there. And, um, and so, so I went down The Big Breakfast, set the whole thing up, and then I, we, got, we made some title sequences, we did some bits and pieces, like some comedy um, animation for them. And, you know, and... Being, being the company that made that show, it was a huge show that was just sort of everyone was, who was at the company was involved with. And so, so I was roped into helping develop like ideas for it and, and like audition presenters because getting the right presenters were always the, the hardest thing to do. So, so I remember being down there when they were doing Jenga with, dressed up as giant eggs, Denise Van Outen and Johnny Vaughan dressed up like, and it overran by two hours and they, they kept it on air. Channel 4 just kept it on air because it was like just Jenga and it was like, you know, it was, it was that kind of, that kind of fantastic show so it was great fun but being that jolly at 7.01 in the morning is quite a difficult thing to do every day um, I think you have to be of a certain disposition or drink even more coffee than I drink that to, to be that jolly at 7 o'clock in the morning yeah. and nowadays it's just your repeats of all the, the, the basic idea was it was Saturday morning kids TV for adults every day which is a great idea I have to say and what were Zig and Zag like as well? <laughs> the man who, who ran Zig and Zag was <laughs> one of the, the funniest sort of most, most intense people. Uh, and uh, it's just disconcerting because hearing that voice coming out of an actual person and not those two strange puppets, it was, was, was quite a thing. Um, but it, it was one of the first shows that, you know, the crew were involved in it and, and, and would laugh because and, they couldn't afford an audience. Cause no one would turn up at seven o'clock in the morning in a cold in an industrial state uh, in East, East London. Um, <laughs> to stand in the garden or anything. So, so it was, it was and yeah, and, and Chris Evans, I remember we, we 
having rather too many drinks with Mr. Evans. He offered me a job when he sent me his company and I and some shares in it. And I said, like, oh, no, I'm not going to work for you. That won't last. <laughs> I could have made a fortune or something, but, you know, um, uh, not one of my most sensible decisions. But um, I, I can't really complain. It, it was great fun. And, yeah, again, you, you got, you got the, the Spice Girls turned up and came to my office by mistake but before they were just before they became huge and did their little sing song. I was going, what are you singing at me for? I make cartoons. Go away. <laughs> uh, and they got told off of being flat as well, and they weren't allowed on the show. So it's just it's I mean, that show was incredible. Like you know, like you said, the show repeats in the morning now. I really do miss you know something like the Big Breakfast being on TV. And for our overseas listeners or anyone that's too young to remember it, I will put a link to um, Zig and Zag's music video for them girls in the show notes as well. They need to check it out. <laughs> it was great stuff. Yeah, you know, it was just a sort of a, I think it was tried around the world, and some countries it did, it did quite well, and other countries, you know, in the states, I remember just. They had no idea what this thing was. They were used to fairly serious, like morning news. Even on the fifties, their breakfast shows was presented by a monkey. Um, so, so they, it, it was quite an odd thing. Um, and and Plan Twenty Four, like you know, the, the company that, that I worked for, went did Survivor, so the first reality show for reality television, sort of all stems from, from these sort of these sort of programs. So, and the Word, which was a late night, very uh, strange, clubby sort of program, where so, there were people yeah. in charge of thinking up things that, that you really didn't want to be involved with ideas wise like the people who do anything to get on television and this they literally did so it's just quite a, quite a thing well peter it's been incredible reminiscing with you and um some amazing stories over the last hour what are you what are you working on these days then working on lots of different things really um i do corporate speaking i'm, I'm the comedy person that after some some big technology you know technology event will turn up on the Friday afternoon and, and tell the developers how, how, you know, they don't understand how normal people use their things and I make some technology jokes. I, I hopefully suggest a few good ideas here and there that they might quite like. Um, but, you know, that, so I, I do that and I really enjoy that. Um, it's like being a stand-up comedian, but, you know, with, with better pair. My cat's howling me. Stop howling, cat. Um, <laughs> um, and um, I've been working on a movie for a little while and I have to say the movie industry is even funnier than television. It's, it's very good fun. And I write scripts and I've written a book about television shows about television shows so you know about as television as you can get which is uh hopefully coming out in, in sort of three or four months time and so, so i've worked across a lot of projects i'm having quite a lot of fun working across different projects well peter you've had such a varied and interesting career so far and of course if people want to read more about it and um, there is i think it's about 10 pages with you in the acorn a world in pixels book so um, of course that will be linked up in our show notes as well it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Peter. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing some of your stories with us. Well, you're welcome. As you can probably tell, I don't mind talking about myself in the slightest, so that's absolutely fine with me. Thank you for having me.